we are wrapping up our uh, our sermon in our series in James this morning, and what a way to finish. Um, probably one of the most difficult texts in the Bible, if not in the New Testament. Here's the here's the danger when when we uh, when we face difficult tests. Typically, what we try to do is we try to make them easier. Uh, in order for us to arrive at some kind of interpretive certainty, you know, we, it, it seems as though we have, um, we have a hard time with loose ends or what we feel like are loose ends, especially as preachers. You know, we, we, need, to be, we need to be dogmatic and we need to tell you what the, what the text means and, and, uh, and, and that's what people expect. And by and large, that's what we have in the Scripture. Martin Luther talked about the perspicuity of the Bible. The Bi- God wrote the Bible for us to understand. It's not that difficult. But there are some texts that are hard to understand. In fact, Peter wrote about this in his letter when he said this. Remember that, that when he said, um, let's see, is it three, as, as, uh, but in regard to the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things that are hard to understand. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And we do the Bible a great disservice, I think, when we try to, to make it appear as though it's, it is all equally understandable. It's not. There are some things that are very difficult and hard to understand. And worse yet, he goes on to say, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures. So the, the danger when we come to difficult passages that are hard to understand is we have a tendency to want to distort them and twist them so we can understand them. So I thought I'd, I'd give us a little object lesson this morning. I mean, if you remember this toy, they're kids, right? And so I want you to imagine this as the text. And sometimes we come to the biblical text, we find something that it, this piece just doesn't fit. And, and, we, and we try to make it fit. See, so what we do is we say, rather than trying to make it fit, what we do is we take this shape and we cut this out. And then we go, see, it fits. And I think that's what we do many times when we interpret the Bible. Rather than being willing to, at times, you know what, some of these shapes just don't fit. And so we're going to leave them here. And those that do fit... Well, you get the picture. So, I say all of that is that this morning there are going to be some pieces that just don't seem to fit. We just can't figure them out. We just don't know for sure. And wisdom and prudence says when we don't know for sure, we admit that we don't know for sure, rather than trying to make them, make us know for sure. In order, in order to do that, we have to distort it and we have to twist it. So I say that up front to say this is a very difficult passage. And um, there are going to be some, some spare pieces that just don't fit. James chapter 5, verse 13. All different kinds 
of pieces that don't seem to fit. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. And, and then again in verse 14, if, if anyone is sick, he must call the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save that one, will heal him. Well, really? Is that true? Does, does he always heal when, when the elders show up and anoint with oil? This is a piece that we have a hard time fitting. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Really? So if elders anoint and pray for someone, their sins will be forgiven? By the way, this is where uh, Roman Catholicism gets their, uh, their sacrament of, of final, uh, the unction, final, uh, final rites. That if, if you... The priest prays over someone before, when they're sick, before they die, they go to heaven. That's an oversimplification, but that's basically it. This is one of the texts that they appeal to. Although most of the time Rome doesn't appeal to texts because they say, what's your point? The church is the authority, and we say, that's what we say. So, um, that, that's difficult. So, in what sense do elders pray over someone and now suddenly their sins are forgiven? Verse 15. They will be forgiven in 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. So if I, if I confess my sins to you, I'll be healed? The prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So am I to expect that kind of results and power and effectiveness in my prayers? And then verses 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. First of all, there's all kinds of... Masculine pronouns. Who's the his? Who's the him? Let him know that, the, that him, he, who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So my prayer can save someone? Can cover up their sins? See, all kinds of, of if we were to be, you know, ask honest questions of the text, all different kinds of problems. Not, not problems, but difficulties fitting these pieces together. There is no doubt that verses 13 through 20, if, 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 uh, from, an, from an overview standpoint, is talking about prayer. Prayer is mentioned in nearly every verse except for, except for 19 and 20. 19 to 20 just seems like it was cut it and pasted in. It, it, it doesn't really flow with the context of verses 13 through 18. But we'll get there in a minute. So what do we do? What do we do when we approach texts that, that are difficult, that seem to, um, that we can't figure out? We always, we, always revert, we always revert back to, not back to, we always be driven by Scripture, interpret Scripture. We interpret the unclear in light of the clear. So we can say things like, we know that it can't mean that if I pray for someone, their sins will be forgiven and they'll go to heaven. I can't do that for you. No one can do that for you. The scripture is very clear about how someone receives eternal life. That is something that they do. They have to do. I know it can't mean that. So we rule out 
what it can't mean. And sometimes when it comes to texts like this, man, if, if that's all we can do is just rule out what it can't mean, we're usually pretty safe. Unfortunately, we, again, there, there's not many texts like this. The other one I was thinking of is, in, I think it's First John, where he talks about you to pray for someone who sins except for the one, the, the sin that leads to death. I say don't pray about that one. If, if you want a show sometimes, just read some commentaries on what they think that is. All over the place. We have no idea. So the best we can do sometimes is to say, well, I know what it can't mean. And sometimes we have to be satisfied with that. But most times, the scripture is clear and we understand it. So what do we do here? It's about prayer. Clearly, I mean, it, it, all over the place, he's talking about prayer in various forms. So what I tried to do is I tried to take a step back and, and, and look at it from maybe a little bit bigger picture. And I thought the first thing I noticed was the place of prayer. And, and what I mean by the place is, is its place. It's, it's when we pray. What is the place of prayer? And in verse 13, the place of prayer is when we are suffering. He says, that, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. And this we don't usually have any problem with. Now, now this suffering is not physical suffering. This would be suffering that is external uh, to the person. Uh, Much of what we saw last week, the the oppression and the defrauding that that they were experiencing, the the suffering that they were were undergoing, he said, when you face suffering, you pray. And, And we usually don't have any problem with that. But it's interesting that what do some of us do? Well, I shouldn't say some of us. What often I do when I suffer, I complain. I don't pray, I complain. Because quite frankly, I don't deserve it. I'm such a nice guy, I don't deserve suffering. Why am I suffering? I've I've not done anything wrong. I complain. Others may face suffering with just quiet resignation. Well... That's just the world we live in. We live in a sin-cursed world, and, uh, and suffering is part of this world. So th- th- I just call it just a quiet resignation. That's not biblical either. That's not a godly response either. To just simply say, well, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, it's going to happen. No, what does he say? If you're suffering, you're to pray. Now, what does he say? We're to, what is to be the content of that prayer? What does it say? The answer is? doesn't tell us. Which leads me to believe you can, you're free to pray what you feel like praying. Oh, God, deliver me. God, give me endurance. God, take it away. That's okay. The, the, the important part is to pray, is to bring our response to Him. When you're suffering, you pray. Don't complain. Don't, don't just accept it with quiet resignation, but he says, I want you to pray. And look at the second part of verse 13, though. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, this is the one that we usually leave out. When things are going good, when, when life is sunny, we're not suffering, but it's sunny. Life is sunny and the sh- sun is shining down on us. And everything is just perfect. What do we normally do? Take it for granted. He said, not just pray when you're suffering, but when, when, when you are in a sunny time, sing praises. 
We are, we are to express that too. So not just express prayer when we're suffering, but to, ex- to express praise and gratitude during sunny times. And I was convicted of that this week. I've been trying to get back on my bike, but as you know, the weather has not been cooperating. And so I went out, what day was it? Tuesday at lunch. Tried to get out at lunch instead of eating. Um, I tried to ride my bike. As you can see, one's winning out. Okay, so. Um, and it was, it looked like it was going to be nice, but it was just really cold. The, the, the wind was just as that, it was sunny, but it was that biting cold wind. And I came home, and you know what I did? I complained. And uh, Vicky had come home for lunch, and I said, I can't believe it. Can't get, it's May, almost May. I can't get a nice day to ride my bike. It's cold out there. And she said, how dare you? She said, you're 61 years old, and you're able to get on a bike and go ride. And all you can do is complain that it's a little cold. And I thought, you know, you're right. I thought it. I didn't say that. Um, I should have been singing praises. God, thank you for giving me this day. I can ride my bike and with a measure of a pleasure. Um, although, but Aurora, riding bikes in Aurora, you're either going uphill or down. And it's, yeah. Um, but but it, maybe, maybe that's, a, that's a tried example. But, but when, we, when, when we're happy, when we're cheerful, when, when, when we're, we're having a sunny day, sing praises. That's a gift. That's a gift from God. We need to do, I need to develop that more. So he says, the place of prayer is when you're suffering, you pray. When it's sunny, you pray. You sing praises. In other words, we are to keep expressing, constantly expressing ourselves to the Lord. Constant expression with Him, either through prayer or through praises. And then we get into the sticky wicket. That's easy. That's, that's clear. But 14, is anyone among you sick? So we have suffering, we have sunny, and now we have sick. The place of prayer is when you're sick. Now this word for sick always refers to physical sickness in the Gospels. Um, again, there, there's a big debate on, on whether this is a spiritual sickness or a physical sickness. Because they argue, those who say this is a, a spiritual issue, is they say that this is a word that Paul uses for spiritual sickness. And so I looked up all the occurrences of this word in Paul, and it's interesting. When Paul uses this word to speak of a spiritual sickness, he always uses a qualifier. For instance, in Romans 14.1, he says, those who are weak in faith. That, that, that he always has a... Oftentimes it's translated as weak. It's sick or weak. Paul always uses a qualifier when he's referring to a spiritual condition rather than a physical condition. But if it's a physical condition, this, this word is used consistently for physical. So I take this at face value that he's talking about those of you who are physically sick. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So he says, call the elders of the church. By the way, I think that this sickness is different than what we're going to see in 15, in, in verse 15. If the person is afflicted with spiritual sickness, then the second sentence in verse 15 will become unnecessary. But he says, I want you to call the elders. Why the elders? 
Do they have special healing powers? It, has God invested in them the, the gift of healing and, and they are to come and they are to pray? Um, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Again, Scripture doesn't teach that. Nowhere else does the Scripture teach that. I think it's just simply that this person is so sick, they can't come to church. And so instead of sending the whole church uh, over to Pat's house, let's say Pat fell off his tractor. And he, and he hurt his back. And he can't, okay, whatever. And he's home and he, he can't come. They call the elders, as, instead of all of us showing up at Pat's house, we send, they send the elders as a representation of, of the congregation. And it says they were to pray over him. Now, this pray over is abused in a lot of different areas. This is, this is not, this is not a, there's no spiritual significance here. This is, I think, very simple. They say simply, this is a physical gesture. They're, the, the implication is they're lying on a mat, and you are to come beside them and pray standing over them. It, it's, it's just a very simple instruction. There's no spiritual significance, I don't think, in this at all. He's not talking about pray a spiritual covering over them, that, things like that that people often say. But it's, just a, it's just a physical means of saying that the elders come and they pray over him. And what are they to do? What does it say? Anoint with oil. Um, I've got to tell you a, a funny story. Well, funny and sad. I served in a church where the senior pastor believed that the, the, this anointing was symbolic. And that's one of the options. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And so, you know, you take a little canister of olive oil. And, and when you go visit someone sick at the home, and he, he, his, he thought biblically that whatever, whatever was hurting, that's what you needed to touch with the olive oil. Now, I want you to think through that for a moment. I don't think that's what he's talking about. One of the options is that, that the oil is symbolic and, and that it is a symbol of, of the healing presence of the Holy Spirit. But another option is that oil was medicinal. And um, I, 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 have, I was having problems with my shoulder and um, I mentioned it to Corey and Amy I said, no, I'm just having problems with my shoulder. And they said, we got, we got something for you. What do you call it? Deep blue. Okay, I've got to be honest with you. I was really skeptical. Um, as the old saying goes, I came to mock, but I stayed to rock. So I thought, what's it going to hurt? Put on some deep blue. I was very skeptical. I thought, you know, do I throw salt over my shoulder too? And, uh, and man, it, it really worked. It, it was amazing. There's, there's a medicinal quality to oils, certain oils. So, maybe that's what the anointing was. He, that, that this was a way that they would, they would literally rub the body with oil. That this, this was medicinal in, in nature. What are our options? Well, some could say it's both. We take oil... To anoint, symbolic of the healing presence of the Spirit, or maybe even medicinal. But we don't have really medicines that are oils other than fantastic blue or whatever it is. Here's my take. When it says that you call the elders of the church, they pray over the sick, and they anoint with oil, it's simply two things. 
Don't neglect the spirit. First and foremost, don't neglect the spiritual resources for healing, which is prayer. But also don't neglect the natural resources for healing, which is medicine. So I think, I think James is saying, pray and go see your doctor. Pray and take your medicine. See, we, we have this, this hyper-spirituality that, in order, that, that the only way God's going to heal is, is some kind of supernatural uh, you know, healing through, through a prayer. Listen, folks, God, God heals through natural means. This is no less a work of God when we take, we take advantage of, of our, our medical community. And, the, and, and all the gifts he's given us with, with qualified physicians and, and medicines. So I think he's telling them, listen, don't neglect, first and foremost, you pray. Don't neglect the spiritual resources for healing. But the same token, don't, don't neglect the natural resources. Pray and take your medicine. The prayer of faith, he says, will restore. By the way, that's an interesting word, too. Uh, depending on what your translation, some of our translations say save, and some say heal. Restore is, is my, my New American Standard has restore. This is a word that, that is used a lot with Jesus' ministry, sozo. Remember we went through the parables when Jesus would heal somebody? He says, your faith has saved you. The semantic range of this word is there's two primary words for this Greek word, and it's one is save and the other is heal. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And if you remember back when we were going through some of those parables, we were going through the... My, my take on it was that when Jesus said, when, when he healed somebody physically and he says, you are healed, that they got saved too. He wasn't just healing them physically, he was healing them spiritually. And the word has that kind of that double sense, that the physical healing was an outward demonstration of their spiritual healing, of being saved, sozo, being saved. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Not that the prayer itself won't save, but he'll heal them. And the Lord will raise them up, and if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. So, if they were spiritual, then why would he have to be redundant to say they were, his sins are forgiven? And here's my take on this one. IDK. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. Is this... Uh, let me read it again. The prayer of faith will... Save or heal the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. I don't know what's going on there. In other words, um, is this is is this a promise that is always true? Doesn't seem to be. Now the problem could be with us. Maybe Benny Hinn is right. Maybe we don't. Or Kenneth Copeland. Maybe we don't have enough faith. No, I'm just... I'm kidding. Guys, this is mysterious to me. I don't know what to do with this. I, I know what a lot of people do. They, they, they start doing this, right? I'm just going to cut a hole. I'm going to make it fit. What can we say, though? What can we say? We can say this. Prayer 
The place of prayer should have a prominent place in our lives, not as, just as, a, not as a church, but as individuals. And we're going to see in a minute, because prayer is powerful. There's something going on when we pray that we don't really grasp the significance of it. That we can say. When he says that you pray, in a, 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 a pray over someone. In fact, what does he say? He says the prayer of faith. What do we call that? Come on. A genitive. X of Y. Prayer. What does prayer of faith mean? What are the options? Prayer that produces faith? Or prayer that is directed towards faith? Or we could say what? Prayer that is produced by faith? A prayer characterized by faith? I tend to think it's prayer that is, that is infused with grace. Or infused with faith. In any event, we are to pray by faith in, with prayer infused with faith. And that that has a powerful effect. The Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And, and we can try to say, well, what that really means is we pray for him, which makes him that person encouraged to pray for themselves. They're grateful. Uh, that, yeah, but he doesn't say that. That's speculation. I think we'd be better off saying we really don't know what the true nature of this is, other than the fact that prayer is significant. And faith with prayer is significant. Um, Ian Bounds, uh, if, you ever, if you ever get a chance to read Ian Bounds, uh, I highly recommend it. He, let me read this portion for you. He says, we constantly need to be reminded that faith is the one inseparable condition of successful praying. There are other considerations entering into the exercise, but faith is the final indispensable condition of true praying. As it is written in a familiar primary declaration, without faith it is impossible to please him. James puts this truth very plainly. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Faith. Yeah, the faith healers go way too far, but I'm afraid we're, we're, we're too far over, here, over on the other side. The prayer of faith will restore the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up and not just do a work in him physically, but do a spiritual work in his life as well. So 16 is really a summary. The first part of 16 is really a summary. I take the therefore to be a conclusion. Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The therefore probably is more of a conclusion rather than an introduction. And there's two parts really to this verse. And here's my question. He says we're to do two things. We're to confess our sins to one another and pray for, another, pray for one another with the result of you being healed. So the question is, does the healing go with both Confessing your sins and praying for one another? Or is it pray for one another or, or confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed? So does the healing only go with praying or does it go with both? Confession and praying. We don't know. 
In other words, that we may be healed, does it require that we confess our sins to one another? Or does it just go with, pray for one another and you may be healed? I tend to think that it's probably two parts rather than one. We're to confess our sins to one another, and we're to pray for one another so that we may be healed. I, don't, I, it, I just don't see anywhere else in Scripture where confession of my sins to someone else will bring healing to me. Physical healing, anyway. And confess your sins to one another. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time I did that? Now, again, we're not sure what the nature of this was. Was this so that when I sin against Dan, I confess that sin to him? We confess our sins to one another? She confesses your sins to you, yeah, which is, is, a, is, a, is a clear distortion and twisting of this text. Whichever, which, whichever direction you go, don't you get a sense of a, a unique kind of body life in this text? Of elders praying over the sick, of praying for one another that we may be healed, of confessing our sins to one another? Uh, think, think, of, think of the body life that that requires. And think of the church today. And I know we have, we have these massive churches, and, and, and I know that they have small groups and, and Sunday school classes and, and, and maybe home groups, whatever they call them. But at what point do we experience body life and do we experience love and trust in community where we can actually confess our sins to one another and then pray for one another that we may be healed? That we can say. I think we can do that from this text. The place of prayer. When we're sick, when it's sunny, when we're suffering, we pray. But finally, the power of prayer. We see the the power of prayer. In the last part of verse 16, he says, The prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Do you believe that? You don't have to answer. This is Torah. Do you really believe that? If we believe that, why don't we pray more? If I really believe that, if I really believe that the prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about can accomplish much, I'd be praying all the time. See, I think it's a fundamental problem of unbelief. If we're to be honest with ourselves, we really don't believe that. Or we pray, we, we, we pray regularly. It's interesting, if you, if, if you compare translations and how they translate this verse. How many of you remember this verse in King James? Yeah, th- here, let me give you the King James. And I, I, I love the language of King James. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So we see there, there's some fluidity in, in terms of how this is translated. New American Standard is the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. ESV, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. New King James, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, basically the same as King James. The NIV, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So if nothing else we get from verse 16b, what do we get from this verse? Prayer is what? Powerful and effective. And he says, 
the prayer of a righteous person. All kinds of questions, right? What does he mean by righteous person? Does he mean experientially righteous? Does he mean the person who's really holy, really gets God's ear? Well, we know in other places, we know at least one time when prayers can be hindered. Peter talks about if, if, if husbands, if we don't honor our wives, he says, honor your wives so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think we have to be careful of saying, well, because our prayers are hindered in that case, they could be hindered in other cases. We don't know that. But is that it? Does that mean that the reason my prayers aren't getting answered is I'm not righteous enough? My question is, well, how righteous, how, God, how righteous do I have to be experientially before you hear and answer my prayers? So that's the problem with that approach, it seems to me. How righteous do I have to be? How good do I have to be? How holy do I have to be for my prayers to be powerful and effective? I tend to opt for the fact that this righteousness is, is for the believer, the, the, the positionally righteous. The, for the believer, God hears our prayers. For the righteous person, the person who knows Christ, he hears our prayers, and our prayers are powerful and effective. Now, certainly, if we're living a sinful, ungodly life, no doubt that will affect our prayers. We probably won't pray. I guarantee you, most people living ungodly, unrighteous lives are not praying. I tend to think that this is probably not experiential righteousness, although there are times when our behavior will affect our prayers. But again, we get into that thing, well, how righteous do I have to be? I think this righteousness is, is a positional righteousness. Those who have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, those who are believers who know Christ, He hears our prayers. And our prayers are powerful and effective. He hears the prayers of his people and he gives the example of Elijah. And, and, and uh, he was a man just like us. He, wasn't, uh, he, he had the same human nature that we have. And, and I don't think the, 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 the saying here is for us to, the thing to go and, and pray for 80 degree weather. And we'll get it. Or to pray for rain and we'll get it. That's not the point. He's saying that for the person who knows Christ... Just like Elijah experienced a powerful response, so you can expect a powerful response. The powerful potential of prayer. We at least can say that much. And finally, verses 19 to 20, not... Just the power to change things. We, the, the prayer has a power of changing things. Elijah was able to change things. Prayer can change things. But it also has the power to save souls. Again, 19 and 20 just seems so out of place. My brothers, he's talking about prayer and healing. And now suddenly he says, My brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth and, turns, uh, and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I, I don't, I, again, th- th- this is very difficult. It, it's seemingly unrelated to verses 13 to 18. Why he finishes his letter this way, I do not know. We don't know how to, all these personal pronouns, who's the he, who's the him, is he the one who's turning, so when he says, let him know that, the, that he who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, is that the one who turned him back, or is that the one who was strained? It, it's very, these, these pronouns are very complex, we don't know what's going on. So again, what can we take from it? I think that we can safely say 
that we need to be so involved in, in each other's lives that we have the freedom to confront each other when one strays. Again, we know that this is probably one of their one of their members. He said, "My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, now that's a key. Someone who is straying away from the truth, not someone who's doing things that the way you would you would, not doing them the way you would do them, or not living up to what you think they should be living up to. But when they begin to stray from the truth." To turn them back. And I think prayer, obviously, is a, is a vital part of that. Difficult stuff. Um, this, is, this, this is no doubt a, a difficult passage. Is the death spiritual death or physical death? You'll save a soul from death. Is it, is it physical death? That they, lead, they, they're gonna, they stray from the truth into a lifestyle that is going, they're going to die? Um, or is it spiritual death? If it's spiritual death, then were they really one who was among them? You see the problems. And how does my prayer cover a multitude of sins? Um, how does my, my, my bringing strain, someone who is strained from the truth back cover their sins? If, if, if I'm the one it's referring to. And the answer is, I just really don't know what's going on here. So again, what can we take from them? What can we safely say, this is teaching us, and and, and this is what we can take away from this? I think two things. Number one is that we need to be involved in each other's lives to the extent that we know when someone's straying from the truth. And I praise God, I can't think of one example in in six, what, 15 years of our church that, that that's ever been the case. Where they truly were strained from the truth. But we need, we, we, need to, we need to be able to do that. We need to be able to know each other well enough to know when that happens. And again, I think that the, the, the key here is that whether we say that our prayers save their soul from death or cover a multitude of sins, we can say that it, they will be restored. Our goal is restoration. Funny way to end a, a, a book, isn't it? End a letter. The, the most difficult, one of the most difficult texts, if we were to be honest, to, the, to, to navigate in the New Testament. And then to end with a couple of verses that really don't seem to fit. Verses 13 through 18. Again, regardless, regardless of our approach or our conclusions... We're still going to end up with pieces that just we just feel uncomfortable with. We don't know how they fit. We don't know what they really mean. And I'm suggesting to us, let's leave it at that. I don't really know, at least right now. Maybe sometime in the future, I'll gain new insight. It's okay to have some pieces that just don't fit. I don't know what it means that when I bring someone back who's strayed from the truth and it cover, it'll cover a multitude of sins. I don't really know the nature of that. And then, try, and then rather me trying to... Make it understandable. I accept it as I'm not quite sure, but it seems kind of good to me, whatever it is. (laughs) So that's number one. Regardless of 
uh, when we approach these texts, let's, let's be comfortable and let's be okay with saying there's some pieces that I don't really know, I, that don't really fit. But even maybe more importantly, take a step back and look at, it, look at it maybe more broadly and say, what can I take away from this? And I take two things. Prayer is powerful and effective to do two things. To change things and to save souls. Prayer is powerful and effective to change things and to save souls. I pray when I'm suffering. I praise when I'm sunny. I pray when I'm sick. And I pray for others when they're sick. And it changes things. And for those who don't know Christ, those who have strayed from the truth, or those who don't know Christ, prayer saves souls. Keep praying for the unsaved in your life. The prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, when you actually do it, can accomplish much. In closing, when I was in seminary, Haddon Robinson was the president at the time. That, that's why I went to Denver Seminary, frankly. And, uh, and he told us in a classroom time, in a, he said that his theory is that if, if you, from Genesis to Revelation, he said if you, if you condense the Bible down, he said there's probably five major themes that run throughout the Bible. Five major themes. And the, the two that I remember, he says one of the major themes that we see from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches don't fear. Don't be afraid. We see this over and over and over again. We saw it with Joshua. I said, don't fear. Don't be afraid. We see it in Revelation. Don't, don't be afraid. But he said one of the primary themes he sees throughout the Bible is prayer. From Genesis to Revelation. Over and over and over again. Prayer, prayer, prayer. If we really believe that the prayer of a righteous person, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much, we pray more. Prayer is powerful and effective to change things. And prayer is powerful and effective to to save souls, to, to bring those back that have strayed from the truth. So let's indeed pray. Father, um, the time was so was so quickly. We 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 really just scratched the surface, Father. Um, I pray, I pray that I would have more faith to really believe that my prayers can actually change things. Not my prayer, but my prayer that you change things through my prayers. That, my, that, that in many ways things are conditional to what I pray about. And Father, forgive me for giving up and not praying for those who have strayed from the truth. And those who um, maybe who once were in the fold but have since left. Or those who never were in the fold and just don't know you. Lord, may we intercede on their behalf. And not lose heart, not give up. The prayer, indeed, of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And may we believe it. And may we actually 
do it. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands? Thank mm-hmm. you.